1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he is reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Well, good morning, everyone. It was a couple of weeks ago now, we were at Bonjean, and uh, one lady came up to me after, after the service and she said, you know, Michael, sometimes we, we get to the stage where we think we've got nothing more to learn. I've right? been a Christian for so long and we've been hearing and reading God's word for so long. It sort of gets to the stage where we think, yep, we're pretty good with God and we've given most areas of our life over to God. But then God's word challenges us in a whole new way. And whenever somebody says something like that to me, I, I rejoice because I know that God's been at work in their heart. And Hebrews chapter 4 says, For the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It, it, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It says, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That's what the word of God does. And I'm finding that this letter that Peter wrote that we're studying at the moment, uh, for me, it's been some of the sharpest part of the blade of the word of God. It cuts easily and it cuts deep. And yet there's very few preachers who, who preach from this book. Um, it's a part of God's word, you see, that it's not very comfortable for those who hear it because it cuts so deep. As we read through the Gospels, uh, we get a pretty good picture of the Apostle Peter constantly getting challenged by Jesus. And just as Peter thinks that he's on top of it and he's got it all figured out, Jesus throws another spanner in his works and, and Peter learns that the kingdom of God is much more godly and the, that the kingdom of God is a very different kind of godliness to what Peter had figured. And then, of course, Peter would have to do something. Peter would have to change the way that he lived. He'd have to amend his attitude to align with Jesus and, and his teaching. And I'm finding that in this letter that Peter wrote, <laughs> Peter himself is really good at passing this very same experience on to us. Righto? So last week, it was a pretty confronting week. Uh, we're, we're in a section where Peter's telling us that the battle, the, the, the battle for our soul 
is a war against the passions of the flesh. And the confronting thing for me has been Peter's revelation that, that one of the biggest passions of the flesh for many of us that we don't realize is a passion of the flesh, but it's something that we need to war against, is, is our desire to be our own master and our desire to put others, be, sorry, put ourselves before others. It, it's that part of us that has the attitude, you're not the boss of me. And, and we, we heard a general command last week, but the thing is the general command, we often forget about that and we sideline it because Peter then gives us a few specific examples. And so we tend to just concentrate on those examples. And by the way, it, it's easier to find exceptions to, to specific examples than what it is to find exceptions to the, to the uh, general command. And so we're gonna see, and we've already started on some of the specific examples of how we relate to authorities and how we relate to our masters or our employers and, and how husbands and wives relate to each other. And, and we tend to concentrate on those specifics, but the general command is what's important. The general command last week, which, which paints the picture for the normal life of a disciple of Jesus, is to be subject to or to submit to every human creation, in other, every in other words, every person. Um, but I'll very quickly insert the caveat there that we did talk about some exceptions. But the general rule, the general command was to submit to and honour everyone. And over the next few paragraphs, which is going to be the next few weeks for us, we see the specifics. And so the specific example last week was how we relate to authorities. Um, this week, for us, I, th I think it's best for us to think of it in terms of the employer-employee relationship. Um, he's talking of it in terms of master-type relationships. So, verse 18 says, Servants, be subject to your masters, or submit to your masters. Now, that's, that little phrase there is going to take a little bit of unpacking. Uh, the Greek word for servant there is... Oikotai. Oikos meaning house, right? So it's actually talking about a household servant. Does anyone have a, have a household servant to, to, to look after everything? Not, not too many of us, no. Okay. Um, but in that era, most of the household servants were actually slaves. Um, and, and this in itself is a marvel of the Christian church. You see, in that society, nobody would ever even bother writing to a slave. Nobody would ever bother giving moral teaching to a slave. They don't need to know that because they don't need to think for themselves. They were just told what to do by the master. And so it was the educated and the elite who were written to. It was the educated and the elite who were, who were um, given the moral teaching. And so you wouldn't write to a slave. But here, in this very passage, he's writing to slaves. He's writing to the servants. Because in the Christian church, you see, there is no slave and no slave owner. There is no employer and employee. We are one on an equal footing in Christ Jesus our Lord. But Peter's not really talking about relationships within the church at this point. Uh, this is talking about our work relationships, um, the, the, the ser servants and masters. 
And the Greek word for master is despotes. And yes, that's the word from which we get our English word, despot. Right? Now, some of you would know that word, some of you wouldn't. A despot is somebody who has absolute power and they can rule the roost, right? Um, and we usually think of it as having bad connotations. Uh, but we don't have to think of it as that here because the word despot, it simply means, sorry, despotes, it simply means the lord or master of the house. And we can't give it bad connotations because Peter doesn't. In his second letter, he actually refers to Jesus as the despotin, meaning that Jesus is the Lord, Jesus is the master. But when it comes to slavery, uh, some people really go to the, you know, say, all oh, you Christians, you know, you, that's not a good religion because look, it never actually condemns slavery. And, and some people go on about this sort of stuff. It is what it is. Back in the world when it was, there was slavery. But the thing is, the commentaries that I read were at pains to point out that we shouldn't view slavery in the New Testament and, and, and think that it's similar to when they, they had slave ownership in the, America, the Americas prior to its abolition. And, and they say that ancient slavery was nowhere near as bad. I'm just going to lay my cards on the table. I'm not at all convinced by that. I'm pretty sure that slaves back then, it depended entirely on whether you had a good master or a bad master. Just as today, we have good employers, we have bad employers. We've got employers who are great to work for. Francois's got one at the moment. <laughs> Francois's been working with me last week. Um, <laughs> then there's, there's um, other employers who, oh my goodness, you wouldn't want your dog to work for them. Right? And I'm pretty sure it had to be the same back then with, with, with masters of slaves. So that, that there would have been those that, well, there were those who did give their slaves honour and, and privileged positions. Some were treated virtually as members of the household, members of the family, but then others would be abused and demeaned. And this is something that Peter acknowledges. He tells us that it's out of our respect for God and out of our fear of God that we submit to our employer, whether they're really nice to us or whether they're crooks. And that's literally the word he uses. Um, uh, the Greek was like scoli scoliosis or something. You, you know how we have the crooked spine, scoliosis? It's the same similar word there. It means they're crooked, crooks. And I'm not sure why our English translations have done this, but they actually shift the order of the words to, to what it is in the original Greek, right? So the original Greek literally says this, domestic servants be subjecting yourselves in all fear to the masters, not only to the good and gentle, but to the crooked. And so the original shape of that sentence, some of you got your Bibles open, and you'll see that in, your, in most of our modern translations, they actually shift the fear and respect to after the word masters. But it, the, in the original Greek, it actually comes before the word masters. And so by having it before, it actually ties it in with the verse that comes before it, verse 17, which we, which we were studying last week, right? So, and, and in verse 17, we're told to fear God. 
And now we get to verse 18, in fear and respect, right? So when Peter wrote this letter, Peter didn't go, hmm, I might put in a new heading here because I've been talking about submitting to all people out of fear and reverence for God, but now I'm going to talk about something entirely different. He didn't do that. And in our Bibles, we chop things up into chapters and verses. We even put little headings there. And so sometimes we do this little section and then forget about that and read this next little section. He just continued writing his letter and he continued his train of thought that we respect and honour all people. By the way, he's not. we don't just respect and honour those who have authority over us. We respect and honour all people we submit to others and we honor others because of the fear and respect that we have for God. And then he goes into specifics. What does that look like? Well, if you're a domestic servant, be subjecting yourself in all fear. All fear of what? Well, he's just told us in verse 17, in all fear of God. And so out of respect and honor and fear of God, we submit to our masters, we submit to our employers, and it doesn't matter whether they're good and gentle or whether they're nasty and crooked. Because we fear God, we submit to them. I told you there's some tough stuff to hear today, didn't I? By the way, if, if you're a little bit worried that I've shifted the order of the words compared to your English translation, I'm more than happy to loan you the word biblical commentary or the new international commentary, which are highly regarded commentaries, and they both explain what I just said. But wow, you, you understand what, what he's saying here, to submit to your boss, even if he or she is a nasty crook. Now, same as last week, because we do this out of fear of God, not, not fear of our employer, because we're doing this out of fear of God, that means that we don't also become nasty crooks. It means also that we, we don't also become as they are or do what they tell us to do if they tell us to do something which is illegal or if they tell us to do something which is against God's command. We can't do it, right? So if your employer tells you to lie for them, you can't do that. If he or she directs you to falsify a document, you can't do that. If she or he tells you to inflate the hours billed to a certain job, you just have to say, no way, I, I, I have to honour God and I can't do that. And if their business practice itself is to mislead people and to take advantage of them, you can't be involved in that. But in the directives that they give us, even, even if our boss mistreats us, provided it's not illegal or not against God's word, we are to submit. Why? It's about being a witness to Jesus, a witness for Jesus, by being the very best employee that you can be. And you understand that, don't you? How by you being the very best employee that you can be, working hard, not back-chatting the boss, always being on time, always doing the job, that gives Jesus a good name. Whether your boss is a good bloke or whether he's a dirty, rotten scoundrel, you be a witness to Jesus because that's your ministry 
is to be the very best employee that you can be. Now, of course, for us, we're not slaves, are we? Well, some, some of you might work for your parents on their farm, you might be a slave, but everyone else, um, we're not slaves. And so if we don't have a good boss, you're quite within your rights to, to end that employment and go and find another job somewhere else, and that's fine. But let's never use this as an excuse to not be a good, hard-working employee who defers to the boss and gives him the respect as the boss that he is. And, and, and we don't ever put ourselves up there and, and say, hey, we're better than our boss is. But it's tempting, isn't it? I've, I've been in workplaces where you, know, you sit around and you're having smoko and the other workers and maybe even yourself, you might start having a whinge about the boss and, and pull the boss down a rung and, and you make fun of the boss and, oh, he knows nothing. You know, we, you know, this, this is disrespect and this is not the way of Jesus. You see, this is a godly thing. Peter actually says in verse 19, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So no, your boss probably doesn't deserve for you to submit to him and to respect him and honour him even if he's been nasty to you. He doesn't deserve that. And that's why it's called grace. It's an undeserved gift. Can you see where Peter might be going with this? We have received the grace of God. Our salvation that, we've, that we have, it's something that God has given to us. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. Christ suffered for us. And that's the grace of God in action. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. By his wounds, we've been healed. God has shown us grace. What do we do then? We also become a people who show grace to those who don't deserve it, even to a despotic boss. But Peter takes it even further than this. Told you it gets hard. He tells us here, disciples of Jesus Christ have been called to suffer. It's not a very popular message today. Let's have a membership drive. We'll get out in the community and we're going to go out and we're going to knock on doors and tell everybody, you know what? Jesus wants you to follow him. And yeah, he promises you that you're going to suffer to follow him. How's the membership drive going to go? See, the biggest and the fastest growing churches in the Western world don't understand this. You go into the church, into the countries where, where the Christians are suffering and the churches are exploding. They're growing in numbers, even though they know they're going to suffer for Jesus' sake. But you won't ever hear a prosperity teacher tell you this. But Peter does, because Peter understood this very well. Peter leaves no doubt about it. Disciples of Jesus are called to suffer for Jesus. It was a commitment that Peter made. In Matthew 16, Jesus told his disciples, and Peter heard it, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Disciples of Jesus are called to suffer. Not just for suffering's sake. We're called to suffer for Jesus. It's going to be tough. You see, if we suffer for doing wrong, so what? That just means I deserve it. But when we do the right thing, when we do the good thing, when we do the honourable thing, if we suffer for doing the right thing, this is the way of Jesus. And some of you may have experienced this in the workplace where you've done the right thing, you've done the good thing, you've done the honourable thing, but then you've suffered because of it. I want you to know this is the way of Jesus. You might have missed out on the promotion. You might have been told by the boss in no uncertain terms that you had to knuckle down and do what he says instead of doing the right thing. I want you to know what you've done is the way of Jesus. Verse 21 says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. I don't know if you're grasping how enormous this is. Uh, For me personally, this is an enormous challenge for me and it's an enormous shift that I have to make. You see, I'm not good at a lot of stuff, but something that I am pretty good at um, is I've, I've, I've got a real knack that when I want to, I can make someone look really stupid, okay? Um, what I do is if somebody wrongs me, I can just use logic to just tear them down and make them look absolutely stupid. And I used to think, oh, this is okay. This is, this is a way of getting back at people which is non-lethal and non-violent, and yet I, I stick them back, you know? But you know what? That is not the way of Jesus. This is an enormous thing for me, an enormous shift from Michael-likeness to Christ-likeness. How can I make that shift? And you might be thinking about that for yourself, thinking, yeah, how do I make the shift to become someone more like Christ? Well, for those who are from my era, when we were learning to write, we had a copy book. Ellen, do we still have copy books in schools? Is that how? We do still have copy books. I bet they're a bit different, though. I know that the shapes of the letters have changed from when I learned to write. Um, but also, I remember we used to, these days, photocopiers are the go. But back when I was at school, I can see somebody doing this. And, and there were two types of duplicators. They're the, the, the ones when you had really something special to print, they'd put in those little tubes of black ink and they would come out. But for the general run of the mill stuff, we used to have these spirit duplicators. And you remember those? Who remembers the spirit duplicator? And what colour was the stuff? Yeah, it sort of come out purple colour. Yeah. And, and so we'd get these little copy book sheet things, purple bits, 
And what would they do? They'd have the shapes of the letters and we would actually have to copy over those and learn how to make the shapes. And then we would move on and we'd have lines at different spacings. And I saw some of the kids had, had some of those lines there today. Different spacings and different colours so that you can get the letters going to the right line at the right spot. That's how we learned to do it. To get the perfectly formed letters for us to trace over. Now that is the exact word that Peter uses here for Jesus to be an example for us. He said, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. And the word that Peter uses in the Greek is literally copybook. Here's the dictionary definition of the word. The commonest use of the noun hypographo is for the faint outlines of letters which were traced over by pupils learning to write then also the sets of letters written at the top of the page to be copied repeatedly by the learner on the rest of the page. Here's the thing. When it comes to submission, when it comes to suffering, even though we've done the right thing, Jesus is our copybook. Jesus is the perfectly formed letters that we trace over as we submit. We copy, copy, copy. We submit, submit, submit. Jesus was perfect. Jesus is perfect. There was no sin. There's no deceit. When Jesus was insulted and abused, he didn't return in kind. Jesus would have been quite within his rights to stand up and, and, and when he suffered, but he didn't. And Jesus didn't threaten. Jesus had the ultimate power in his grasp. That night in the Garden of Gethsemane, when, when, when Peter tried to defend him, Jesus said, Peter, put that sword away. Don't you understand that if I just asked Dad, he'd immediately send me 12 legions of angels by the way, a, a legion is somewhere between 3,000 and 6,000. So that's 36,000 to 72,000 angels. I think that they'd take care of matters. Jesus had the power to retaliate, but he didn't. See, we have it in our heads that if I submit, that just demonstrates that I'm weak. But it's exactly the opposite. And so what we do is, is, is we only submit if we feel that we're too weak to fight back. But Jesus demonstrated the way it's supposed to be. He de demonstrated his strength in submission. Jesus didn't take matters into his own hands. Jesus entrusted himself to God. He entrusted himself into the hands of the one who will judge. Those who treat God's people unjustly, they're not going to get away with it. You know, all of the evil that's in the world, and I want you to remember, Peter's writing to a church who at this stage are suffering terrible persecutions. And... For any Christian slave who was mistreated by their master, what recourse would they have had? Well, I'm going to go to the slave union. 
I'll get back at you. Well, I'm going to go to Fair Work or the, or the Arbitration Commission. No, there was none of that. They had no rights. They had no privileges. And here's the reminder. Injustice might be happening to you today, but that injustice doesn't go unnoticed. And so we hand it all over to the Lord, and the Lord is the one who will judge, and the Lord is the one who will bring justice. And this is the same Lord who loves us so much that he died for us on the cross. And Peter can't help himself here. He's just got to get into it and tell them the gospel. You see, submission, even in the face of injustice, it only makes sense in the light of the gospel. It was unjust that Jesus was crucified. But he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. I want you to hear that again. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You know, a lot of the time when we evangelicals talk about righteousness and the righteousness of God, we, we often get caught up in the more of a theoretical type righteousness. You know, the great exchange that took place. Jesus took my sins away from me and therefore I'm righteous. And this is true. But there's more than this. He didn't take our sins away for us for us to remain the same. And here Peter's talking about dying to sin. He's talking about living to righteousness. This is what being born again is all about. We've actually died to sin and living to righteousness. Now, does righteousness fight back if we're in the right? Does righteousness fight back if we're in the right? What did the copybook do? No, it doesn't. The ultimate righteousness was demonstrated by Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus suffered even though he did nothing wrong. And Jesus is our copybook. And so we don't fight back, even if we're in the right. At this point, Peter does a lovely thing. He quotes Isaiah chapter 53, which we often read around Easter time, around Good Friday time. It's the prophecy about the suffering servant who would come. And what a, what a moving touch. He, Peter is, at this stage, he's writing to servants who suffer even though they do right. And he reminds them also that Jesus is the suffering servant. By his wounds, we're healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And isn't that our story? Some of you here today might still be in that place where you're wandering. You've wandered away from Jesus. We were straying like sheep. 
But now we've returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. And what a blessing that is, to return to the shepherd. And here we see the strength and the gospel necessity of submission. Submitting even to those under whom we suffer. There's strength in that. Jesus has saved us. Jesus has brought us back into his fold. And he did it through his own patient, suffering submission. And we follow the copybook. We are a witness to Jesus by our patient suffering. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So there you go. That's a tough passage, isn't it? Anyone challenged by that? Come on, be honest. I get challenged by this greatly. Now, it's tough, not because it's tough to understand. It's actually pretty easy to understand what he's written when we're willing to hear it. It's tough because it's simple to understand, but it goes so much against the grain. And it's pretty much the exact opposite to the message that the world would give. The world would say, be strong and stand up for yourself. Whereas the challenge for us is to be gracious as Christ is gracious and to submit even if we suffer unjustly. Now, do you see with this message how I'm saying that um, the general command is what's important and let's stop concentrating on the specifics. Because when when, usually when we talk about biblical submission, where do we head straight away go to? Wives, submit to your husbands. How do you think? What, what are we doing here? Hey, this is a general command for all of us to submit to everyone. Now, sometimes I ask for questions, and I sort of thought, I don't know what I'm going to do if I ask for questions, because I, I reckon we'd probably come up with a heap of what-ifs. Okay, oh, but Michael, what if in this case, could, 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 do I not have to submit in this case? Well, what about in this case? Maybe I don't need to submit in that case. Well, the thing is, we could come up with all these what-ifs. Or we could learn to follow the copybook. Jesus didn't ask the what-ifs. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we want to thank you that you were the suffering servant for us. We want to thank you that you didn't retaliate when you easily could have. Even when you did good and, and you suffered, you submitted to that suffering and you did it for our sake. And Lord Jesus, help us to follow you as our copybook. Lord, it is so ingrained into us to, to stand up for our rights. It's ingrained into us to fight back and to disrespect those who, who haven't earned our respect. God, forgive us. Lord, forgive us for when we have disrespected our bosses 
and for when we've not submitted and for when we haven't been good examples for you. Lord, help us to honour you by being the very best servants that we can be, even if our boss is a nasty piece of work. Lord, out of fear and reverence for you, help us to be good examples for Jesus in all situations as we demonstrate the grace of Jesus, as we submit to those who don't deserve our submission. And may we be strong in this. And let us never be ashamed to let them know I do this to honour God. In Jesus' name. Amen.